I want to make it clear now, it's on correlation. That, it was this slide and I glossed over it because I got a, a little bit out of order when I was there. But it, there can be no contradictions between the immediate passage you're studying and the rest of the book or even the rest of the Bible. So when you're correlating text, like in Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 5, when you're correlating those texts, they appear to be saying opposite things. But they're not. There are no contradictions there. You just have to understand Matthew in light of what Matthew's teaching. And you have to understand Corinthians in light of what Paul is teaching. And they will both be talking about judging. In fact, the one in Matthew is the one you're familiar with. Don't try to get the, law, the, the splinter out of someone else's eye while you have a log in yours. In other words, Matthew is talking about being self-righteous and me saying, I have my act together and therefore I can tell you what's wrong with you. And so Matthew is actually talking, the whole Sermon on the Mount and the initial, or pieces of it anyway, are, are, are talking about self-righteousness and how people uh, do things in a self-righteous way way and then they pass judgment on other people so don't judge other people till you first of all have have understood that your logs need to be getting taken out of your life as well when you come over to first corinthians uh he's talking there about righteousness in the body of christ and judging for the sake of righteousness so matthew's on self-righteousness paul is on righteousness and they're both talking about judging so there's not a contradiction there, and when you correlate, you kind of have to understand there are no contradictions either in the immediate text that I'm working with or in even the whole Bible. There are no contradictions. The, the reason we think there are is because we haven't done enough study, and so we just kind of have to, have to do more research and more study. Ho hopefully that cleared that up. Did I cover that? Okay, let's go to application. Now, this is a fun one because it's actually where uh, Haddon Robinson says most mistakes are made. So Haddon Robinson, who is a big guy, he's in heaven now, so he's even bigger than what he was. But he was a teacher of pastors. So the pastor here, Zeke, would have studied under Haddon Robinson. He's a big guy, well-known, written a lot of books, influenced our whole world for, with preaching techniques and the understanding of exposition. He says application is where most errors are made. And so this really becomes important. We have to understand what we're doing here because we don't want to make those mistakes. So application answers the question, what does the text mean to me? So there's two kinds of, of applications that people make. One of them is a right one. One of them is more uh, is, is a little bit on dangerous ground. So there's this application of meaning, which goes like this. The author was intending to say something to an audience about a particular issue, and he intended to accomplish a purpose with that. So the author meant this in order to accomplish this. That's the application of meaning. The author gave meaning to this text because he had a purpose with this text 
and he wanted to accomplish that purpose. And so the meaning of the text says the application goes in this direction. That's the application of meaning, and it's the right understanding of application you should use. And by that I mean when you're reading a text or studying a text, and you say to yourself, what does this text mean to me? You have to say, the author meant it this way to them. He still means it this way to me. The meaning that was there in the first century to the original audience is still the meaning in the text today. Furthermore, what the author tried to get to take place in that audience is the same thing that text is trying to take place in my life. And so God is using it in the same way for them as he was for me, or same way for them as he is for me. That is the application of meaning. This is what the text meant. This is how it was to be used. This is what it still means. And this is how it is still being used. We have been taught to use the model of the application of significance, not the application of meaning. It's what you do when you read the Bible devotionally. So when you go and you read the Bible like I did, like I shared with you last week, and I would just look for something of significance and I would read it and I would go, oh, isn't that awesome? And I would start making applications out of it. And I'd go, that is cool. I can see how it fits in my life. Well, the text was significant to me. And so I made applications out of that significance. But it was just because it had some impression on me, but it wasn't necessarily attached to the meaning. Every time you read the Bible looking for something significant, you'll make applications of significance that are significant to you, but the next person reading it might have it be significant to them for a different reason or not for your reason entirely, which means your application was personally personal, had nothing to do with the church, had nothing to do with how God intends it to be read. It's just how it impressed you. Those are not based upon the meaning of the text. They're just on how the text hit you. I'm not saying they're wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't ever read the Bible devotionally or the Holy Spirit won't impress you with the biblical text. I'm not trying to say any of that. I'm just saying you've been trained to apply the text from an application of, of its significance to you. And you should start training yourself around the idea that the text should be applied based upon the meaning of the text. And the meaning of that text was to that first audience, the meaning is still the same to me, the meaning applied to that original audience, and the, and the application applies to me in the same way. So, for example, the book of Corinthians is a book about unity. And Paul was striving for unity in the Corinthian church, and 1 Corinthians should still be used to promote unity in your local churches. There's no question about it. Furthermore, it should be used to promote unity between different congregations if they hold to the gospel. So, so this church is in fellowship or agreement with some of the other churches in the area because you all hold to the gospel. First Corinthians is about unity. 
and we need to be unified with people who share our common theology and the truth about Jesus Christ or the gospel. So that unity, that was the point then, is still the point today, and the application then is still the application today. And so one of the things we could say is anytime we divide, it's bad. Division is bad. It, it, it undermines the unity that God uh, made established in the body of Christ through Christ. And we, we can't divide that unity and be right. So what it meant in the first century, it still means today, and the application of the first century is still the application today. As you read the Bible, even devotionally, you should train yourself to, to develop the sense of application from the meaning of the text, not just from its significance to you. All right, I'm going to show you a couple ways to do that. <clears throat> the first thing I want to show you is this idea. It's, it's called, and I don't have my slide on this one, but it's called the ladder of abstraction. And so if you think of a railroad track, like you're standing on a railroad track, it, here they look, they look this far apart, and then as you look down way off in the distance, they look like they're right next to each other. So it, it kind of travels this way, and they get narrower and narrower as the further you look in the distance. Reverse that in your minds and think about looking down through history and them getting wider and wider apart. That's the ladder of abstraction. And so as you move, as you're reading and understanding Scripture, some things move from the first century culture to our culture, and it's a direct, real narrow kind of a movement. Other things tend to be real far apart, and we have to look at those differently than these ones that are close. Here's an example of ones that's, that's close. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now notice I've highlighted wives and husbands in blue because... There were wives and husbands in the first century, and there are wives and husbands in our century, and it's exactly the same. They were married for life, right? That's what it was. So you had wives and husbands then, wives and husbands now, and the relationship is the same today as it was then. Culture's different, but the relationship is the same. So what Paul said in the first century is still true today, and the movement is just directly across. It's not hard to get there. You move a little higher on this ladder, and there's this movement that's just a little bit further away, and it looks like this. So a little later in that same passage, it says bondservants. In the original, it reads slaves. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And then it, it talks to slaves for a while, and then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says masters... Treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And so here it's talking about slaves and masters. We do not have slaves and masters in the United States. We did, and thankfully that's over. Now we have the closest thing to slaves and masters in our day is employee-employer. We've moved a little higher. It's not direct. But we have a similarity between that culture and ours. They had slaves and masters. We have employers and employees. And the principles cross back and forth. 
but it's not direct. It's up one level, one rung on the ladder. Now we can go a little higher than that and move up another rung yet, and we can do that in this text. This is 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, and I'm jumping into the part on women. I'm not picking on women. The verse previous to that talked about men, but this is the one I want to use to show you this. So it says, likewise also, that's like the men, just like the men, the women also, that's what we're talking about now. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now notice this. Paul's concern here is one thing, but he gives three examples and we would go, what? Are you kidding me? One example is braided hair. As I look over here, I see some braided hair. Have they sinned? Look, right there. Scripture says no braided hair. What's wrong with you girls? Right? Okay. Or gold or pearls. Your parents all, your moms at least, all wear jewelry. Some of your dads probably even wear jewelry anymore. They wear earrings. They wear nose rings. They have body piercings. Uh, they wear wedding rings. They wear, they wear they, diamond necklaces, gold or pearls. Some of your most prized possessions your mother has are the strand of pearls given to her on her birthday by your dad. It's right there. It's right there. And then the last one says, and shop at Kmart. Good Christians shop at Kmart. Do you not understand that? Okay. Or at least it, you don't shop in real expensive stores. And we have to go, what? All right. So we know by reading this that there is distance between the first century culture and our culture. Because we know there's nothing wrong with braided hair. There's nothing wrong with gold or pearls. And in fact, our clothes today cost a lot of money. So back when I was preaching a lot, I wore slacks that would have been, cost 100 bucks. I'd go buy a, a pair of $100 slacks. And I think uh, in some cultures, they would fall over dead thinking, I spent $100 on slacks. But in my culture, $100 on slacks isn't a lot. Uh, when I wear them every day and preaching them and so forth and so on, you tend to want better clothing. But in some cultures, you'd go, that's terrible. That's a waste of money. The ones I'm wearing today cost five, in case you're wondering. So what is Paul doing with here? What is Paul dealing with? Now listen to the argument. I also want women, they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. The issue that Paul is dealing with is how women appear in society. And if you compare the way you women are being taught from a Christian perspective to what unbelieving families are teaching their girls, you should have a reason why you dress the way you do. So, uh, you should recognize that the world 
the unbelieving world is telling you women that you have this thing that will attract everyone's attention to you. It's called your body. And if you just doll your body up, Every guy, you walk down this aisle, every one of these guys are going to go, and they're going to stare at you. And you're going to be significant because of your body if you just attract attention to yourself in a right way. In the first century culture, you know how they attracted attention to themselves? Braided hair, gold, and pearls, and expensive clothes. And a woman dolled herself up, showed up in society, and said, Woohoo, baby, I'm here. And every guy went, Baby, you are here. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, That's not how we show up in society. We show up in society to make a difference for Jesus, not to call attention to ourselves. So we don't show up in society to say, Hey, I'm here. We show up in society to say, a servant of Christ has just walked in this room and I want you all to see Jesus. That's why you dress the way you do. Did you know that? That's why you're not like the, the magazine Cosmopolitan or whatever magazine's out there for you girls, I don't even know. But the idea is there's a reason why you dress the way you do. You want to dress the way you do to call attention to Christ, not to call attention to the world or yourself and your form. But you want to live and dress in such a way to call attention to your righteous character. Look what Christ can do when he gets a hold of a person like me. Now you dress completely differently than everyone without Christ. That's this text. You have a powerful impact in the culture of this community or Grand Island or the United States. When you say, I'm going to show up Christ-like, and all your friends are showing up going, look at me, I am hot. And Paul's talking about showing up with a character that points to Jesus, not showing up with clothing that points to you. That is not like our culture. So we'd have to say, what does modesty look like in the United States in 2018? So if we're going to take this text and apply it, we can't apply braids and, and costly jewels and costly clothes. We have to say, what does modesty look like? And you all know when you've crossed the line of modesty. Every last one of you knows that line. You know there's a line. And you, when you see someone who's crossed the line, you know it. Don't cross the line. There's modest behavior and there's immodest behavior or dress and you know what it is, don't cross it because you're showing up on the scene with a different perspective. You're higher up on the ladder and you're not talking about braids but you're talking about modesty. And modesty in the first century looked like that. Modesty in, the two th in 2018 looks like this. Show up in the world to make a difference for Jesus. Don't call attention to yourself. I'm going to give you a story. I don't know if this is appropriate for you, but uh, I'm going to give it to you anyway because I think you're adult enough to understand what we're dealing with. So there was this missionary that went to New Guinea several years ago. And it was a topless culture, so all the women went topless. 
And uh, if you go to other countries in the world, they don't view women as we view women, and, and toplessness is nothing. And in this particular area of New Guinea, the women all went topless, and it wasn't an immoral move. In our country, it would be terribly immoral, but over there, it wasn't immoral at all. So this missionary went over there, and he was an American, and he was thinking with American mentality. So one of the first things he did was he gave all the women blouses and said, you've got to wear a blouse. So the women all wore the blouses, and then they got saved, and they started wearing blouses. And, and uh, later on, the missionary had to test whether or not his mission work was being effective. And so they gave a, a test to the people, and they said, what does it take for you to be saved? And the answer from the tribe was, admit that you are a prostitute. And the missionary went, what? Are you crazy? I never said such a thing. And so he had to do some research in the culture to find out how his message of the gospel was interpreted by them to be, I have to admit I'm a prostitute in order to be a Christian. And so he did some research, and here's what he discovered. Sailors would end up on their part of New Guinea and in their island, and they would barter with the prostitutes for sex and they paid them with blouses. So the only people on this island that wore blouses were prostitutes and every moral person went topless and the missionary just sunk down. He goes, oh, how did I know that, right? Because modesty is a cultural phenomenon. It's not the same in every culture. In our day, that issue is showing up in the uh, Islamic women's clothing, right? Because they're saying these girls are totally immodest because their face is showing. And they would go, oh, no, man, you've got to cover that up and only have this. And the problem is we know that it's not that, that, that it doesn't change the hearts of the men at all. They're, they still lust. Modesty is different in America than it is in New Guinea. And you have to understand modesty through the eyes of the culture. So I was raised in South America. I was a young kid, I was your age actually, and I was home on vacation and it was the last day of school, it was a hot summer day in the, in the Paraguayan uh, uh, village where I lived. So all the kids got out of school, they wanted to run down to the river and jump in the river and swim, and so I, I went with them. And, and the girls, the girls all, all undressed down to their underwear and they were all topless swimming with the guys and I was going crazy, I'm going... I don't know what to do. I was nuts. I, it was terrible for me. No, no, I looked around at all the other guys, all the Paraguayans, and not one of them was staring at any of the women. And I couldn't take my eyes off of them. I, I was like, <laughs> the problem was with me. That was not immodest in that culture. I was an American in a foreign culture and was redefining modesty. And so I was nuts with lust. And the Paraguayan boys were going, we're just swimming. It's an important lesson for me to learn. Modesty is different in cultures. And when you're teaching this text, you have to understand the culture in which you're teaching it. It's not about braids. It's about modesty. Some people interpret it about braids, and they say women should never braid their hair because of this text. It's crazy. It's a wrong interpretation. Okay. So now, there is one other place you can move a little higher on this uh, uh, ladder of abstraction. 
It's 1 Corinthians 8.1, and it says, Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now I'd like to suggest to you this. We do not have knowledge about food offered to idols. We don't have any. We don't have that in the United States. We have laws governing how animals are slaughtered, where they're slaughtered, so forth and so on. And we don't know anything about food sacrificed to idols. There is no correlation between the first century audience and us. We have moved up four rungs on this ladder. There was a direct correlation. There was a slight correlation. There's a distant correlation between modesty and the cultures. But now there's no correlation. We don't know anything about this in the United States. There are other cultures that know about this. We cannot preach this to an American audience or interpret this and say, I have to be careful about food sacrificed to idols. You don't ever have to worry about it in the United States. But we do have to preach it around the principle of the text. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And Paul's argument isn't primarily about food sacrificed to idols. It's about how you relate to people around this subject. And we have to teach it in that and almost ignore the issue because we don't have that in our culture at all. So the higher you go, the further the cultures are apart. So then you have to become more abstract in your interpretation or application of that text. That's how the ladder of abstraction works. You just kind of have to be familiar with it. Sometimes that Bible talks directly to you about something. Other times it's a little more indirect, and sometimes there's a far gap between what it's talking about in your life. But there's still an application, and it comes out of the principle that's being taught in the text. This is one of those texts where, right now anyway, we don't have to worry about food sacrificed to idols. It just doesn't happen. I want to just tell you how I apply the texts. And to me, this is the safest way to apply the text. And, in my opinion, the best. So, as you know, I was a preacher for 40 years, and I had to apply the text every week. And this is how I did it, and I felt comfortable with it, and uh, I still am comfortable with it today. And it's this. There are many texts that ask you to believe something. When the text asks you to believe something, you should apply it to yourself in your belief system, not in your practice. So, if I believe this, I am believing truth that sits on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And when the text asks you to believe something, to put faith in this, to believe it is God's truth, that's, that's your application. Believe this. This is true. There are other texts that ask you to do something. When it asks you to do something, that's the application. So there's some that are asking you to believe things. There's some that are asking you to live a certain way. Apply it in those two general categories, and you're way better off than if you try to apply it in every category every time. So, for example... Uh, husbands love your wives. If I'm going to take that text and apply it to me, 
it's going to become very important for me to love my wife. Now, you might say, well, how am I going to do that? How do I know if I'm doing it? You have to ask my wife. Does my wife feel loved? If my wife doesn't feel loved, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'm not loving her. It's an application to me on how I treat my wife. And so, so it's not asking me to believe anything. It's asking me to be the kind of a husband where my wife feels loved. Now I have an application for that text that allows me to love my wife in certain ways. That's kind of how that whole side works. So when the text asks you to believe something, believe it. When it asks you to live a certain way, live a certain way, and keep it in those categories, and it becomes simple. Okay, any questions or comments on anything to do with interpretation, correlation, application? Yes. How does this work in my life? If, I, if I'm reading this for personal spiritual gain, how does this text affect me and my being? Whether it's my mind, my character, my behavior, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. And so as a teacher of the Bible, I would read the text, I'd study it, and then I would say, okay, how does this work by way of application in my audience? How does this fit here in different circumstances? But it's always, how is this shaping me in some way, directing my life? How should I respond to it? Yeah. Is it a Christian camp? And you're making applications from nature itself? Um, well, I would be able to give you some applications from nature without even, without, even, uh, uh, being, without even knowing how you're teaching it. So I don't know how you're teaching, using nature to teach anything about God, so I can't be specific, but I can be general. So I would, I would, one of the things we have to understand about God is that our God has tremendous diversity. So if you look at nature, you will find that, uh, you know, in the seas there's all kind of fish. So I was snorkeling in Hawaii off, the, off one of the islands in Hawaii, and I'm looking down at these rocks, and there's just tons of fish swimming around. And they're amazing. I mean, they're amazing. Colorful, different shapes, different appearances, different colors. They're beautiful as you're looking down snorkeling in Hawaii. And, and one of the things that impressed me was, geez, everywhere you look, you see a, a piece of the diversity of God. Our, our, our God's not so narrow and so, uh, so small that he can't make all these things that are beyond my wildest imagination. So that's an application out of nature. So one of the things, and I don't want to steal my thunder from this, but I'll have to do it now. I'm going to be back on March 11th to do your chapel. And I'm going to teach you a proverb. One of the applications that I'm going to teach from that uh, is going to be using Psalm 19. So now you, you get a heads up. You can remember this. So Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies show the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they convey knowledge. So the heavens declare his glory. So I don't know, maybe if you're dealing with nature and you're looking at the heavens at night and you're seeing the stars, one of the things that, one of the applications is that God wants you to look at the heavens and recognize that our God's glory is represented in the heavens. Now one of the ways that we do that is we look at the stars and we go, that's amazing up there. 
One of them is you look at the sun and you go, geez, who could have ever put that sun in the sky so that every day it burns the same heat, same distance from the earth, and every day it's providing sunlight and so forth and so on. But now that in our day, in our day, we now have telescopes and we know that there's galaxies and galaxies and galaxies. They never reach the end of the stars. And we now know there's galaxies way, way out there and there's planets and stars and all those things and all those galaxies and we're going, why? You know how the world interprets that? The world looks at that and goes, obviously, there's humans in another galaxy. We just have to find them. There's a, there's a creature out there that evolved like we did. You know how God wants you to understand that? The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show the work of his hand. Have you ever seen the glory of God limited in any way? The answer is no. And I don't care how big of a telescope you get. I don't care how far off in the, in the distance you look. You're going to find a star giving evidence to the manifold, infinite glory of our God. And it doesn't mean there's a human planet out there. What it means is, man, my God, he's great. He's great. I'll talk more about that on March 11th. So I would do that type of thing. So I don't know what you're teaching when you're teaching about nature, but nature has a creator, it has a designer, and that designer is revealing himself. So John 1, which we're going to talk about later in the day, says, uh, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, in him is life, and then he created all things. Nothing was made that he didn't make. And so Jesus, the Word, uh, the divine communication, the Word, the divine communicator and the divine communication created the world in order to communicate God to us. And I would have that as the foundation of all my applications with nature. In fact, I do. I, I witness a lot using that concept because everybody goes, ah, the world just happened. I go, you've got to be kidding me. The world just happened. It's ridiculous. Anything else? Did I answer your question? That's the best I can do. Your better resource is probably sitting in the back of the room on that. Any other questions on this? Yes. You're going to get me stoned. Well, if that meant what, they're, what some people say it means, you're out of line for asking the question because you didn't keep silent. So we don't believe that it's a universal statement in every situation because we allowed you, a woman, to ask a question in a congregation form. So we do, not, we do not believe that that means women should be silent in, in a church setting and shouldn't ask anything at all or shouldn't, shouldn't have any input. We don't believe that. The question that the church is struggling with in many cases is where does that line get drawn and the line gets drawn between the role of women and elders, the teaching elders that Paul talks about. So you have male leadership, scriptural, and then where do women get to fit into that? And a lot of that 
it has to do, I think the application gets changed around the world and it's a very difficult thing to narrow down directly. But what we do know is that it doesn't mean women should be silent, you guys should never talk, and let me talk over here because these are the real Christians or the real leaders of the church and you guys are just kind of there. And, and so you're out of line, you be quiet. And, you know, that, it doesn't mean that, we know that. So part of it was cultural. But I think the text in, in 1 Timothy, we'd have to look at the text in 1 Timothy and understand what Paul, what Paul was trying to teach Timothy and then how it applied into Timothy's ministry. Now, I believe that's the one that, I can't remember, there's one in Corinthians that does the same thing. But, okay, I can't recall. But my point is to say, we don't believe it strictly. Women should be silent. They don't have a voice they should never teach. They should never ask questions. They should just, we don't believe it that way. So then the question becomes, where's the line at which that does fit? And I personally look at that and think it had to do culturally with women in that day and what was respectful and societally beneficial. I'm sure that's the case in the First Corinthians passage. I'm, I'm not familiar offhand how I understood it in Timothy. I'd have to do some research on that. But it's, it doesn't mean women should never talk. We know Priscilla was a good teacher. We know Miriam, Moses' sister, was their worship leader. So she was actually the worship leader of Israel when Moses was leading Israel. So women have a voice and they have a place. The question is, how does that relate to the role of an elder, which is a, a male position in the church, and Paul calls them teaching elders. So my understanding, and I don't have first-hand knowledge of this, but in Korea, when the church exploded in South Korea, there were no Christian, there were no, very few Korean men wanted to assume the leadership's positions. But the Korean women did, and so the pastor of the big church in Korea actually used women to do all the teaching, but he did, they did it all under his authority, and they did most of the teaching in the growth of the Korean church because the men wouldn't step up. So there's times in history when, when the women have to do the teaching because the men kind of are spineless. But in all honesty, that's a, I think there's a cultural application to that, and I really don't know how to go beyond that. In some cultures it matters, in some it doesn't. The rest of this day is now going to be spent looking at the stories of the Bible, and this is an absolutely fun part of this class. So I hope it keeps you awake the rest of the day.